This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today, I'm joined by Martin Lundfall, developer on the Cotricity project, a collaboration between Consensus and German utilities provider, RWE. In this episode, among other things, we discuss the future of the Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, so I have a background in engineering physics, uh, music, uh, mathematics, computer science, um, but right now with a lot of focus on mathematics, I'm doing my master's at Stockholm University and I got involved in Ethereum um, when I was to write my bachelor thesis in mathematics um, and I was looking at the uh, proof-of-work systems that were in place uh, I didn't know about uh, Ethereum yet so I was looking at Bitcoin and I was um, thinking that it would be nice if the proof-of-work mechanism uh, did something useful and what would be useful I thought is that uh, maybe they were to solve a mathematical problem and um, that developed into uh, me discovering Ethereum and realizing that what I actually wanted to build was essentially a bounty system, a bounty system for mathematical statements. So people would be able to submit a statement that they wanted to have proved and reward people for submitting proofs uh, to that statement. And so how did that become, how did that turn into an Ethereum thing? Um, well, it turned into me... Uh, <laughs> essentially going uh, in a different direction with my bachelor thesis and not really uh, integrating Ethereum into that at all because I realized that you couldn't really do this uh, in the current state of things in Ethereum. Um, but just discovering about Ethereum, um, I came to realize um, how useful it would become where essentially arbitrary parties would be able to cooperate um, and I think that that is an extremely exciting uh, development. So we were just having a conversation, Martin, about the EVM. Yes. And about what direction uh, it's gone in, what direction people would like it to go in, um, what will define that direction, and what the goals of the people using the EVM are, and how it can be used, it can be redesigned to realize those goals. Yeah. So. Taking it right back to the start, how does the EVM function right now and what gripes do people have about it? So um, the EVM is a, um, a language that is pretty close to uh, assembly language. So it has a set of opcodes uh, that you would normally expect, like you can uh, add uh, integers together and uh, you can do all sorts of uh, loops and, and jumps. And it also has a specific Ethereum-specific set of opcodes that allows you to make calls to uh, other contracts and reason about uh, when an address uh, actually is an address and, and 
transact value and all those sort of things. But the foundation of it is uh, based on being very close to uh, assembly language and as such a language it is in the imperative paradigm and that uh, is something that uh, few people, uh, quite a few people are uh, objective towards and I would call myself one of those. Um, and uh, we're moving towards a direction where the EVM will develop to EVM 2.0, which will be a flavor of WebAssembly, or WASM. And that will definitely bring, bring a lot of uh, improvements uh, in terms of efficiency, but it will still keep the EVM in the imperative paradigm. And people are looking into whether other types of architectures or other types of uh, EVM languages or VM languages would be more suitable for the blockchain and um, that I find to be a very interesting question that I think we should explore. So let's start by uh, defining our terms. So we've got the Ethereum virtual machine yeah. and that runs a language that you know, when I think of when I think of a computer I think of it's these ones and zeros blasting through a network of transistors. But that's yeah. not at all what's going on with the Ethereum. Well, I mean, no, so we're slightly higher up uh, <laughs> in the level of abstraction. Um, so we're in the... Uh, and, and that's partly because we are dealing with a virtual machine and not you know, a language that uh, eventually goes straight into the machine. But we have a, an EVM language that is uh, expressed in bytecode that um, is then in every client um, interpreted and uh, you execute uh, code based on what client um, you are running your uh, Ethereum uh, client on. So the translation goes, the language in which the code is written is compiled mm -hmm. into EVM code, yep. which is then which is then compiled into the language of the individual client, yeah. which is then... Or, yeah, it's interpreted in the language of the individual client, but okay. basically, yeah. And then that is compiled into something that the processor on the individual computer yeah. can yeah. work on. And so uh, a lot of tests are written, of course, to make sure that all of the different clients are interpreting the uh, EVM bytecode in the same way, because that's obviously something that we would want to in order to have a large uh, virtual computer. So what is the imperative paradigm? So the imperative paradigm um, is, um, I would say, uh, a model of computation that is based off uh, us thinking about computers in terms of Turing machines. And so in a Turing machine you have uh, a tape and you have an internal state of the machine and depending on what the Turing machine is reading off of the tape, uh, and what state it, it is in, it determines what to do next. And so uh, going slightly higher than that, um, the Ethereum uh, virtual machine language is a stack-based language where you push things on to a stack, which is just uh, you know a collection of a bunch of values that you have put onto the stack, and then you can pop things off of the stack and you do some operations on these values. Uh, explain what you mean by the stack in this context. Yeah. Um, so the stack is like a place where you uh, store things in memory. Um, so you read off um, some uh, value 
um, maybe if you have a function that takes an input x and adds a 2 to x. You first read whatever um, input value somebody has given to you, you, you put it onto the stack and then you read what the rest of the function does, okay, you say that it should add 2 to whatever you have on the stack, so you take what you have from the stack and you add 2 to it and then you turn that value. So what is it about the imperative paradigm that people find troublesome? Um, the fact that it can be hard to reason about certain properties of functions in the imperative paradigm. Um, for example, if you want to know um, what your functions are actually doing, then uh, there is not much information that you can gain beforehand from looking at the bytecode and the only uh, reasonable thing that you can do uh, in, in many cases is to just run the program and see what it does. It's kind of uh, obfuscated in, in that way in that it's hard to uh, see what a program does just by looking at its instruction sets. And so what is the alternative? Uh, there are a couple of ones. I would say that the two largest ones would be the functional paradigm and the paradigm of mobile uh, processes. Uh, and so in the functional paradigm, you are looking at computation as something uh, closer to what mathematicians consider when they consider functions. You have an input and you have an output. And then you want your uh, programs to basically be functions uh, in the mathematical sense that um, they always give an output, given an input, and for every input they only give one output. So there is no uh, non-determinism involved. And so that's the, uh, that's the paradigm that you advocate for? Yeah, um, that's the paradigm that I think would be very interesting to explore. There are certain um, parts of the functional paradigm that uh, some people claim make it not well suited for the uh, blockchain and that is uh, because of this constraint that you always want your functions to output the same uh, result given an input it can be hard to deal with things like mutable states um, and so maybe if you uh, think of somebody making a transaction um, let's say that they make a transaction of, of 100 ether to another person, uh, obviously if they run out of ether after doing that transaction a couple of times, then there would be a different outcome with the same input. And so you need to model um, this state uh, being everybody's balances on the blockchain and the uh, code of all of the other contracts in a smart way so that it allows you to still use the functional paradigm and the benefits of that while still having a nice way to reason about um, mutable states, basically. So what is it about the functional paradigm that makes it more appropriate? Yeah. Um, what you basically have in the functional paradigm, uh, which is uh, glorious and nice and something that we should strive for, is uh, formal verification is extremely easy. Um, because of the fact that there is a very a tight connection between uh, types and proofs 
and, and functions and, and theorems uh, known as the Curry-Howard correspondence, you have, um, it's basically a way for you to be able to prove certain properties of your program as you're going around, as you're going along writing the program. And how is it that those, uh, those proofs are generated? So they're generated in the same sense that a mathematical statement is generated. Basically, you have a formal system by which you say what a proof is, what it can be, uh, derived from a set of axiomatic uh, rules of derivation. And so basically, you want your type system to reflect those rules of deduction in, in the mathematical uh, context that you're in. Can you explain what you mean by the word type? Yes, uh, or I can try. <laughs> um, so we, we can think of types as we know them from the imperative paradigm uh, being quite simple um, as strings or integers or, uh, or bytes. Um, and we can say certain things like it doesn't make sense to um, add uh, a string to a number, or it might make sense, uh, it, it, we need to define what it means to actually add a, a string to a number. But if we uh, think of another analogy, and, and let's say that we have a type of colors, then it might not make sense to add two to the color green. And so our types uh, govern a sort of behavior of what we can do with our various objects that we're working with. And in the functional paradigm, uh, it's quite common that you have a fairly um, small set of types to begin with, but you have a way to build types out of old types. And so uh, thereby you get this uh, richness in the type system that allows you to uh, quite clearly express certain properties of the objects that you are talking about. So, and, uh, and correct me if I'm, I'm misinterpreting this, The one of the big differences is that you can use known relationships between those types to prevent a, uh, a statement like green plus two. Yeah, exactly. But under the imperative paradigm, you can determine whether or not, in advance, whether or not a uh, adding one type to another is going to uh, produce a meaningful result. In, in advance, without having to actually run the uh, run the the function that is that is doing it. Yeah. So in the in the functional paradigm, you can uh, ensure. Oh, the imperative uh, paradigm. Yeah. The, 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 the functional the, in the functional paradigm, you can uh, ensure that uh, it makes sense what you're actually doing before you do it. And so, how does this all come back to the EVM? Um, it, come backs, it comes back to the EVM in the sense that um, when writing smart contracts, there are a lot of things that we would like them to do, uh, but uh, we might not always be sure that the code that we have written um, actually does that. And so um, if we were to be able to express that a certain um, object that we have and we're talking about on the... Uh, blockchain has certain properties, uh, then that makes it easier. Let me give an example. Um, in token contracts, we 
talk about people's balances um, in uh, mapping between addresses and integers. And we have a function by which we can uh, reduce the balance of one person to increase the balance of another person. And so we think of that as the uh, money having changed hands. And so it would be quite nice if we were to be able to prove that there is indeed no way that the total amount of balances for all the participants or all the token holders um, has changed. So I don't know if I said uh, it would be nice to ensure that or not, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> so it would be nice to ensure that the uh, total amount of balances of all of our participants uh, stays the same. Uh, because that means that balance or the, the token is a resource that cannot be copied. And uh, given a good type system, I think we can be able to, uh, I think we can express uh, such properties. So this is, this is interesting though, because uh, we don't normally think that of there being an issue of, you know, obviously someone forging tokens or anything, but you're talking about from an actual, uh, from the point of view of code, you can make it impossible to write a program which would assume uh, an, uh, an additional number of tokens. Yeah, I'm saying that uh, it would be nice to have maybe a um, way of uh, declaring that a certain resource that we're talking about on the blockchain is not copyable and only transferable. I think that would be uh, pretty good to have. And it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so how can something like this prevent uh, the DAO hack? Um, so if we have this... Uh, system, one can also expand on that and maybe let's say that we want to express the property that nobody can withdraw more funds than what they have. Uh, if we were to be able to prove that of a system like the DAO contract, then I don't think the DAO contract and the DAO hack would have been able to be executed. Well, in the way that the DAO was written, we wouldn't be able to prove that property, but uh, if we had formal verification, maybe would have, uh, we would have discovered that bug. Um, <clears throat> so, so can you tell me a bit about uh, the new EVM, EVM2? What, are, what do people expect to um, be part of that? And, and what, uh, what are you looking forward to, to finding in it? And what do people, uh, what is the imperative right now to to develop a, a new version of the EVM. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about the new EVM or the WebAssembly uh, virtual machine is that it will have huge uh, efficiency uh, optimizations. Uh, it will be probably a lot smaller in terms of the length of the byte size of uh, contracts. Um, and it will be able to execute uh, function calls faster. Um, but in addition to that, another thing um, that I'm not really sure will uh, happen, but uh, is certainly something that might happen, um, is that one of the reasons why WebAssembly was created um, for the web um, was to translate 
native code or code that is written in C++ or another language into WebAssembly so that you can have native code running on the web. And that uh, will give all sorts of interesting new web pages once uh, WebAssembly uh, comes into production. Uh, you can now have very uh, complex uh, complex programs running in the browser, like maybe a music production studio or games with very high-end graphic can be running in the browser without uh, you know too much lag. Um, and so I'm not really sure if the uh, guys developing uh, the EVM 2.0 will integrate this, um, but it seems likely to me that we would be able to translate uh, C++ code into uh, WASM, into the new version of EVM. So this isn't going to include the functional paradigm? No. Uh, this is uh, actually not that far from what the EVM looks like today and that makes it easy to implement because one of the things that we would like to have uh, for Ethereum is backwards compatibility and so um, one of the main uh, areas of research for the guys developing um, EVM 2.0 right now is to translate old EVM 1.0 to EVM 2.0 um, and uh, that is quite easy to do because they are to some extent, similar in the same paradigm. But if there was to be a shift in the paradigm, there might be difficulty with backward compatibility. Yeah. And so um, I can give an example of uh, a couple of people at Scenario that are um, going to use a different language and a different paradigm for their virtual machine, uh, which is based off the Pi calculus or a process calculus, the um, calculus of mobile communications um, and they're very ambitious in terms of how their whole architecture will look like and I think the project is very interesting um, but one of the things that they cannot really do easily is to translate um, EVM code into this language uh, that would require a lot of work it's uh, possible of course because everything is Turing complete and you can translate everything into everything, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. Or efficient, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I'm not actually sure that we should strive for backwards compatibility at this point. Um, because I think developing an optimal virtual machine language for a blockchain is something that is uh, not very trivial and we shouldn't expect that we have mastered it at the first try or the first couple of tries and if it becomes the case that if it turns out to be limiting that we are always striving for backwards compatibility and that prevents us from uh, using a VM language that might be better suited for the blockchain then I think we should uh, drop the requirement of backwards compatibility. And this comes to what we're actually striving for. Um, there's, I have a ton of, ton of questions to cover, but, okay. um, and there are so many, so many ways you can go right now. Yeah. But so what are we actually striving for with the EVM and yeah. the Ethereum project in general? Yeah, so the way I like to think about the problems that we're solving with a blockchain is in terms of game theory. Um, what we are enabling 
is the ability for arbitrary parties to specify rules by which they can cooperate. And so the blockchain has a way of turning arbitrary games uh, that has a couple of players and uh, rewards built in for various uh, strategies into a cooperative game where they can enforce behavior on their teammates or their uh, team players uh, and might be able to achieve a higher utility together rather than apart. This is actually, uh, this harks back to a um, discussion I had with Jan Talen about how many of the problems that we face in real, in, you know, today, mm -hmm. um, global warming, nuclear war, yeah. pollution, um, you know, or just any conflict, it all comes from, um, and just general poverty, it comes from an inability to coordinate. And often we find ourselves in these economic traps where we are um, in competition, the, the very principle of capitalism and our entire economic system and way of organizing our societies through competition. Um, but that leads us to make sacrifices for the sake of competitiveness. Whereas in fact, what we should be striving toward is not to be the most competitive individual, but rather to solve the problem as a group. That's the potential magic that the, that, um, the blockchain brings to the table. Definitely. And um, there are a couple of interesting talks on YouTube by Vitalik uh, speaking about this very early on, um, giving the example of uh, the Eng English language uh, where um, some spelling conventions don't make a lot of sense. Uh, the fact that we spell cough as C-O-U-G-H and not just C-O-F. But it's very hard for one person to... Uh, change the whole language because um, language is a convention. It, it is uh, the result of a coordination problem. Um, and so if we had a way in which people can commit to, um, let's say, the decision that if enough people joined, everybody would start spelling uh, cough C-O-F, uh, um, then they would do it too. So we definitely have a unique way of solving uh, coordination problems and cooperation behavior in general uh, with the blockchain. And that I think is a very nice way of looking at uh, smart contract design in general, because what we want to do is to create the rules of a game that will result in a specific, uh, uh, specific utility for the players involved. And that's why I think uh, smart contract design should be an exercise in mechanism design um, where you do exactly that. Uh, and so, so following on from that, so how do, you, uh, how do we go from where we are now, which is creating this kind of extremely flexible effort at creating a kind of mechanistic Esperanto mm -hmm. to something that is specifically uh, designed in a more constrained fashion? So I think uh, what we should first all do is to uh, learn everything we can about game theory. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm working on that myself, uh, the learning part. Um, but then it makes sense to me that we should have a language 
the EVM language or the virtual machine of the blockchain should be a language in which it is easy to uh, build rules for games, in a language in which it is easy to exercise mechanism design. And I'm unsure of exactly what that language looks like, um, but I would expect it to have a lot of similarities with mathematics because that is the way in which mechanism design is usually exercised right now. So this language would effectively have to map to uh, two mathematics quite closely. Yeah, or at least um, it should be easy to translate results from mechanism design to this language. Uh, and it should be easy to uh, build rule sets that um, it is easy to reason about what sort of behavior they will result in. And what does that look like in terms of a, a practical uh, example? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question. Um, I think one way of, of going about it is uh, using dependent types. Uh, so that is a, a um, in the functional paradigm, a, a set of uh, a type system that is highly expressive and you can basically formulate all of our most interesting mathematical ideas in a fairly concise way in that language. Um, but of course, not everybody uh, is thinking in terms of mathematics when they're writing their smart contracts. And um, I believe that the point that you brought up earlier about Corda and about the way that they want to make law into code is also a very, a very interesting approach because essentially, um, you know, lawmakers have been uh, doing mechanism design for as long as they have uh, been in place um, because they're trying to uh, maximize the utility of a society and we are trying to maximize the utility of whoever is involved in the smart contract system that we're considering. So taking this to the, uh, to the future of Ethereum, uh, maybe, maybe EVM4 or, or, you know, and, uh, and looking at the way that the blockchain itself is going to evolve. How does the relationship between the Ethereum blockchain uh, as it is. Oh no! Actually, no. I'm going to talk about something totally different. Um, we mentioned Scenario earlier, and uh, and those guys are attempting to develop a, a system that can handle concurrent transactions. Yeah. Which to me seems at odds with the idea of a at odds with the the purpose of a financial network or a, or a network that is that is dealing with. Um, financial transactions and that might be a uh, short sighter on my part but what about um what about the parallelization of the evm and, and how that works yeah so right now all of the transactions that are uh included in a block need to be serialized they need to be uh, it needs to be decided in which order they should be executed and uh, a lot of people are arguing that that is not very efficient that you know we have a lot of people in the Ethereum network and we want to agree on some state updates, but is it really efficient that only one state update can happen at the time? 
Um, and so what Scenario uh, are doing in order to solve this problem in a dynamic way is that they specify the namespace of the processes that they are um, adding to the network. So when you are um, building a system, you define the um, interested parties in the system or the um, parties that the system concerns. And that allows um, for you to reason about whether two transactions can be executed in parallel because they might not conflict because they're either in, in different namespaces or they just have um, certain results that are independent of each other. Is this in any way related to the functional paradigm in determining um, different uh, different types of transactions that have different uh, different potential interdependencies or interrelationships? Uh, it's definitely related. Um, the exact paradigm that they are using uh, doesn't normally uh, isn't normally uh, looked at as the functional paradigm, but they are still um, looking fairly closely into the types of the processes and uh, they are looking into what the processes are doing without executing them. So the um, so looking now at the future of the blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, and the future of the EVM, and uh, and we know that the planners, scaling plans, involve breaking the blockchain up into much smaller pieces until essentially it doesn't even resemble what we think of as a blockchain anymore. Which is not really surprising. It's quite a it's quite a strict and rigid data structure. Yeah. Uh, so, I would presume that the EVM itself would have to change considerably to operate on using a this new uh, this new quite different data structure that still has similar properties but is largely rearchitected. Um, what is the development of the blockchain in these in this new direction? going to mean for the EVM? I think that the um, direction that a lot of development is moving in right now is that, you know, state channels is becoming a big deal uh, where people realize that they can have the uh, security of the blockchain without actually using the blockchain. And uh, that is because it's an agreement between two parties and so they don't need to show the whole world that they did a little trade. Um, they might do it later if there's a disagreement. Um, but I think that uh, what we need to start doing uh, is to think about when it is reasonable to put things on the blockchain and um, in general who we think that our processes are concerning, who we think that the agreements that we're making uh, are actually relevant to. Because those are um, maybe a set of witnesses that might be the blockchain right now. Everybody uh, in the Ethereum network is a witness to every process that happens. Um, but maybe um, if you just want uh, a lower level of security, you might not need as many witnesses, and so you can uh, gain some efficiency from doing that. Maybe um, 
it's only relevant to all of the token holders of a particular type of token that you're considering. And so there's no need to tell everybody in the rest of the world that you have done a token transaction. Um, so I, I get a, so state channels are awesome, but what I'm really specifically interested in is how the EVM will have to change to match a new, uh, a new blockchain that it's interacting with. Yeah, and I think the EVM should have a way uh, by which we can easily reason about uh, who is involved in a particular agreement um, so that we can look at the transactions happening in our you know, blur of different blockchains and um, have a way by which we can um, look at a transaction and say, okay, this concerns all of you guys. You should all be a witness to this transaction. You should be included in the consensus mechanism of this little uh, particular state update. Um, that it, and, and just in general, ways of reasoning about uh, agreements um, before the actual transactions are executed is something that I would like to have. Cool. Uh, is there anything else we should cover before we wrap this up? I don't think so. No? No. Pretty good? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll uh, check back in for a chat about Cotricity for State Change. Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, thanks Martin. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info, or follow us on Twitter at etherreview. Ether